Well, it's a real pleasure to be here again. Uh, though the subject I'm going to talk about, I'm, I think, is, is depressing, not as depressing as, as my other book, uh, uh, The $3 Trillion War. Um, the uh, subject is, is global financial market regulation. The United States uh, and the world is, is beginning to go through a, a slowdown. Uh, I think most of us think that the U.S. is probably in or will be in uh, a recession. Uh, there is a debate about uh, the extent of the recession. Uh, I think by I think it's going to be one of the worst recessions, downturns since the Great Depression. Uh, not everybody shares that view, but I think it's clearly uh, a, a, going to be a, a serious economic problem uh, for the for the world. Uh, part of the underlying uh, cause of the of the, of the downturn in America's subprime mortgages. Uh, America exported these mortgages, which we call toxic mortgages, uh, around the world. And uh, in some ways, that may, has made the problem in the United States uh, not as bad as it otherwise would have been. On the other hand, uh, it has caused problems all over the world. Uh, these, these toxic mortgages have showed up in Australia, uh, in France, in, in Germany, uh, everywhere. And uh, even worse, uh, our, our uh, bad banking practices have shown up in the UK um, and elsewhere around the world. It's an example of uh, the darker side of globalization. A lot of people have talked about the enormous benefits of globalization. But the other aspect of globalization is that uh, not only do good things go across borders, but so do bad things, such as these toxic mortgages. This is the, or last year is the 10th anniversary of uh, the 1997 uh, East Asia crisis that in 1998, 10 years ago, became the global financial crisis. Uh, at that time, uh, there was a, a great deal of discussion about the concept of contagion. Problems in East Asia spread to other parts of the world. Problem in one country that began in Thailand spread to Indonesia and then to Korea. Uh, there was a worry about it spreading to other countries around the world. Uh, and that was the argument was that, that there needed to be uh, action by an international organization, in that case the IMF, uh, what it did was not good. Uh, in fact, it made the problems worse. But uh, the point I wanted to make is that it, there, were, there was a, a broad agreement that there was a need for international collective action. And the word contagion helps explain why there was this kind of a need. Uh, a problem in one country was going to cause, it was worried, problems, very serious problems, in uh, other countries. Uh, and the word contagion is, is reminiscent of, of a disease, of a contagious disease. And when we have contagious disease, there's a recognition that we need to have, uh, there's a need for public health. Uh, you need to stop the uh, contagious disease. The word that economists use for describing this is, is, is that there's an externality. The action of one person has an effect on others. The action of one country has an effect on others that is not mediated through the price system. They're not charged for it. Uh, and uh, therefore, they, they don't 
They don't fully take into account in their own behavior all the consequences uh, that follow from their behavior. And the result of this is you don't get uh, economic efficiency. You can, in some cases, get a, a social disaster. Uh, externalities and more broadly a concept of a closely related concept of public goods provide the rationale at the national level for collective action for people one of the rationales for governments undertaking a variety of, of activities you know why is it that we think that markets by themselves are not sufficient for addressing all of our problems, particularly even, even in the area of economic life, why do we ne believe we, we need a government, is that markets don't handle all problems and particularly don't handle problems uh, where there are externalities or where there are public goods very well. Uh, these are called problems of market failures. And there's a well-developed theory based on the theory of market failures for the need for collective action at the national level. Well, a number of years ago, uh, actually about 30 years ago, I, I explored the idea of going from a national public good to the idea of a local public good. The difference between a national public good and a local public good or a national externality and a local externality is that there are certain kinds of, of activities, certain kinds of actions that only affect those in a small neighborhood. So, for instance, uh, a problem of a fire is an example of a local externality. Uh, a fire at one place can spread next door to your neighbor, and that's why you need to have a, a local uh, public fire uh, station. Uh, actually, in some parts of the United States, uh, there, there was the view that the fire, fire services should be privately provided. And if you didn't pay your fee, uh, you didn't get fire protection. Uh, and there could be a fire, and, and they would just let the house burn down. Now, the problem with that particular solution is this notion of contagion. Uh, if your house was next to a fire that was burning down because you hadn't paid the amount that you were supposed to pay to get fire protection, uh, you were in a pretty dangerous position. And so there was a, finally a, a notion that you couldn't have any choice about whether you paid. Everybody had to pay for fire protection, and that's why we have taxes for fire protection. It's provided uh, to everybody. Uh, and, and, and that's a, an example of, of a local uh, public good or a local externality. Well, then about 15 years ago, I developed a notion called global public goods, notions of, of, of externalities or goods that the reach of which is beyond that of any specific nation, but extend to the whole world. And uh, the, the financial crisis in East Asia was an example, at least many people thought, of, uh, of a global externality, a global public good, that if you didn't stop the fire in East Asia, it would spread to other countries around the world. And in some ways it did. After the East Asia crisis, there was a crisis in Russia, or Latin America. The extent to which they are related is a subject of, of uh, economic debate. But the notion that a problem in one part of the world could spread to another uh, is, a very, is a very clear one. Actually, uh, one of the motivations for the creation 
of the international economic institutions was the Great Depression. A Great Depression where actions by each country to protect itself had externalities, had effects on others. In the Great Depression, what uh, many countries did is to raise tariffs to protect their own markets in what was called beggar thy neighbor policies that had the effect of, of protecting their own markets by cutting off what they purchased from others. That's why they call beggar thy neighbor policies. And the problems in one country spread to another. And one of the arguments for the founding of the IMF and, and the WTO was to stop this kind of, of, of you might call antisocial behavior that could contribute to a, a, global, a global slowdown. Uh, well, there are uh, now, we understand, a, a, a whole array of, of global public goods. Uh, global externalities. Uh, the most important one uh, was one that actually people didn't really understand uh, very well until recently, and that's the global environment. Uh, global warming is a global public good. Uh, the, 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 the CO2 molecules that originate over the United States uh, don't carry uh, passports or visas when they go over the rest of the world. And so all the, the pollution, all the carbon dioxide coming from the United States goes into the global atmosphere and, and there's a problem of global warming. Uh, and uh, no country can be immune. So the fact that the uh, uh, United States is polluting more, uh, uh, the largest uh, emitter of greenhouse gases, is having effects. For instance, the sea level is rising and... and uh, Bangladesh, a third of Bangladesh will be underwater. Many of the other South Sea Islands will be underwater. They'll, they'll, be, uh, they'll be disappear uh, as a result of, of global warming. And that's an externality. Actions by people in one country have effects on those in another country. Uh, there are, as I say, about five or six important global public goods. Knowledge is another important global good. An idea that starts in one country can have an effect on others. Uh, um, health, diseases can move around the world, worried about bird flu, uh, avian flu. Um, the, uh, uh, and and, and uh, there are international trade, is, is, uh, actions by one country can have an effect on others. So, so there are these areas of, that we recognize now where actions by one country, or by people in one country, can have effects on others. Well, just like within a country, when the actions of one, country, uh, one person affect the other, markets don't work well, the same tr thing is true at the international level. And this becomes part of the rationale for global collective action. As the countries of the world have become more integrated, they become more interdependent, and there is a need, therefore, a greater need uh, uh, for collective action. What happens in one country can have a greater effect on those of another. So the need for collective action has been increasing. The problem is that we don't have the international institutions 
uh, with which to deal effectively, uh, democratically, with these global public goods and global externalities. And the result of that is that they are not, in general, uh, dealt well with well. In fact, uh, the problem is that in many of the areas, we have global collective action where we don't need it, but we don't have it where we do need it. Uh, and that actually reflects some of, the, some of the, the nature of global collective action today. Uh, global collective action today is to some extent, or to a large extent, motivated by uh, special interests, and I'll come back to that uh, a little bit later, special interests uh, that, that uh, in one way or another have captured the global political process. And you can see that most clearly in the area of international trade, uh, where uh, the WTO is uh, um, the international uh, organization for trying to, to uh, devise a framework for international trade uh, where we have rules of the game, and any game requires rules. But the way the WTO works is, is, is not particularly democratic or reflective of, of a broad set of interests. And part of the reason is that when the trade negotiators go to Geneva, uh, the trade ministers really are more than any other agency in most countries reflective of special interests. Now, I know that best from the case of the United States where, where you could see it. You know, I, I knew, that, that, to put it, Mickey Canner, who was the, the uh, U.S. trade representative in the beginning of the uh, Clinton administration, was his campaign manager. He was the one who was supposed to try to raise money. And raising money, you have to pay people back. These are investments. And uh, many people got a good return on their investment. Uh, the, uh, you know, when we were talking about issues of domestic economic policy, we always talked about what is fair and what is efficient. We looked at economic efficiency, but we also use the vocabulary, what is fair. When it came to international economic policy, uh, that was not the question uh, that was asked. When we sent our trade minister, U.S. call U.S. trade representative, to Geneva to negotiate the, uh, say, the Uruguay round, the last trade negotiation, we didn't say, come back with a fair trade agreement. If he had done that, he would have been fired. Uh, what we said was, come back with the best agreement for America, but what we really meant was, come back with the best agreement for our big campaign contributors. And uh, you could see that so clearly in, in, the, in the TRIPS agreement, which is this intellectual property, Intellectual property is very important to academics. It's one of the things we do. But the nature of the university and the nature of the production of knowledge is that most of us believe in, in open inquiry, an open system. And the intellectual property provision is a, is a system that's trying to close down access to knowledge, to reduce access to knowledge. And you need to have incentives, but uh, 
you need to balance out concerns of access to knowledge and incentives. And that wasn't done in the intellectual property uh, provisions of, uh, of, of the Uruguay Round Agreement that was signed in 1994. Uh, you, you, you could see the, uh, the, the, the disparity between America's domestic agenda and our international agenda uh, in this area, but one of the critical aspects of this was access to medicines. Uh, the intent, one of the major objectives of TRIPS was to make it more difficult for poor countries to get access to generic medicines. And generic medicines sell for 3%, 5% of the brand name medicines. So if you have a year's treatment of, of of uh, an AIDS medicine cost $10,000 the brand name, uh, the generic medicine may cost $150, $200. If your income is $500, you're not gonna be able to afford $10,000 a year. You might be able to afford the $150 a year. Well, while President Clinton was talking about access to medicine, that was one of the big issues in the 93 election, 92 election, was access to medicine, making sure that Americans had more access to medicine. It was a central part of his platform. In the international agreements, at the Uruguay round, American negotiators were trying to reduce access to medicine. While he was very critical domestically of the pharmaceutical industry, in Geneva he was in bed with the pharmaceutical industry. Now, while I'm critical of Clinton, things have gotten much worse under President Bush. Uh, so I want to make, keep this in perspective. Relative to President Bush, Clinton gets an A+. Uh, but uh, what I do want to emphasize in this is the marked contrast, the marked contrast between uh, the way we were approaching domestic issues and the way we were approaching international issues. Uh, well. The subject of my talk uh, is, um, uh, is finance, and I want to turn to, to that, but I think this illustrates uh, the, some of the, the, the kinds of issues, some, some of the difficulties uh, uh, at hand. Well, as I said, the world is now facing a global financial crisis, the second one uh, in just over a decade. Uh, the IMF, the International institution, organization, that's supposed to maintain global financial stability, obviously didn't do what it was supposed to do. In fact, it's been talking for, for several years about global imbalances and said if something's not done about the global imbalances, uh, the, the, the world faced uh, uh, what they would call a, 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 a disorderly unwinding of these uh, global imbalances is something that we're likely to be seeing in the next few years. Uh, but it didn't do anything about it. It didn't do anything about the movement of these toxic mortgages across boundaries. In fact, it insisted on opening up borders to let it make it more easy for these kinds of things to go across boundaries. And why was this? It wasn't a surprise because there is only one country uh, what I refer to as the G1, that has the veto power at the uh, IMF. 
And where were the problems of global imbalances originating? From the G1. Uh, the United States in, uh, in 2007, for instance, borrowed $850 billion from other countries. Uh, money was flowing from poor countries to rich countries. It was like it was flowing uphill. Uh, here you had the richest country in the world not able to live within its own means and lecturing other people about fiscal responsibility. Well, uh, with the U.S. as the fundamental source of the global imbalances, it wasn't a surprise, and the U.S. having the veto power, what was a surprise was that the IMF was so willing to be critical, but it was not a surprise that it couldn't do anything about it other than a few speeches. Uh, the, the same thing in terms of regulation. Uh, clearly, uh, the problem there were problems of regulation that were pretty well obvious for anybody to see. But the IMF, it's not just that the United States controls the IMF, or has this, a single country with a veto power, but who represents the United States and each of the other countries at the IMF? Uh, I sometimes jokingly say there's a diversity of views because there are actually two uh, governors from each country. The central banker, and the uh, finance minister. So you have a, f a wide range of views that go all the way from central bank, uh, central bank governors to finance ministers. Um, the fact that you might have, and, and this is, you know, uh, on media we might, we might uh, take note of this, the fact that a global recession might cause unemployment and might be of concern to uh, billions of people around the world is not a particular concern to these finance ministers and central bank governors. That is not primary, their primary focus is on one thing, inflation. And uh, so it's not a surprise that they say, uh, you know, with the other thing, probably more important than inflation, uh, is making sure that the, uh, the bankers within their countries make a lot of money. They succeeded in that. Uh, they haven't succeeded in maintaining full employment around the world. So, uh, the, the, governance, the governance of the IMF, uh, so centrally focused on financial markets, financial markets are short-term financial markets, not long-term investment. In the United States, we often make a distinction between Wall Street and Main Street. It was a focus on Wall Street, not on Main Street. Not on growth, but on the well-being of the financial, and particularly the short-term financial sector. Well, as critical as I've been of the IMF, uh, problems not only of, uh, uh, you know, problems of, not just the problems that I've just described, but problems of lack of transparency, uh, the fact that there is no such thing at the IMF as a Freedom of Information Act, it's difficult to find out what they're doing. Uh, there was one occasion I describe in my, my book, uh, uh, Globalization and Discontents, where the U.S. government gave uh, uh, a, a, an order uh, that uh, concerning how the repre U.S. representative of the IMF and the World Bank would vote on issues of what is euphemistically caused, called cost recovery. That's charging poorest children in the world for going to kindergarten, first grade, and second grade. Uh, the U.S. representative voted in the opposite direction. 
U.S. Congress said you, you can't, you know, we can't, it's not, we can't uh, say that require poor people to pay for primary education. But our U.S. representative voted the opposite way. Could get away with it because it was all done in secret. No one knew. Well, the good thing about, the one, one, uh, one, one good thing about this is that these organizations leak all over the place. And so eventually it leaked out that they, that they were disobeying Congress and Congress demanded he come, uh, the U.S. Uh, executive director explain. He said, oh, well, you know, I promise I won't do it again. We don't know whether he'll live up to that promise because it's going back into secrecy. So there are these problems of, of this lack of transparency. But as bad as the problems are at the IMF, uh, what happens in bank regulation, which is done in a committee called Basel, is even worse. Because most people don't even know about Basel. <laughs> there is no system of accountability. Uh, it's basically accountable to the banking, to the bankers. Uh, it's the central bankers and the other bankers deciding the rules for bankers. Uh, and so our banking system is basically a system of self-regulation. And self-regulation in general doesn't work. Uh, the reason we have regulation is because we believe that sometimes incentives of the private actors are not consonant with social interest. Uh, that's why we have regulation. And they didn't seem to understand this. The nature of the new regulatory system called Basel II was, not, was uh, the nature of the self-regulation is that they told the banks that they should have risk management systems to manage their risks. Now, it's startling that you would need to have a regulation to a bank to manage its risk. You know, what else is it supposed to be doing? It's supposed to be, you know, how can it survive? If it's not managing risk, well, a lot of them aren't surviving. But, but the, the point is, you would have thought that that, that that would have been a primary aspect of their business models. So in saying that that was a regulation, what they were saying is, we aren't going to regulate you, in effect. Well, uh, the, the, what, we, what was so obvious and what should have been so obvious was that bank self-regulation didn't work. Uh, not only didn't it work, the other part of the bank, uh, bank risk management, the bank risk management, was that we relied very heavily on uh, rating agencies. Uh, and what we've, uh, now everybody recognizes is not only do the banks not know how to assess risk, risk rating agencies didn't know how to appraise risk. But we should have known that because in 1997 we had a financial crisis and one of the things that was at the center of that financial crisis were the risk rating agencies. They failed very badly then until, you might say, days before the Thai crisis, they were giving Thailand a triple A. Now, of course, when Thailand went into bankruptcy, they recognized that there was a problem. <laughs> and they downgraded the, the, the rating. But in fact, as they downgraded the rating, they actually exacerbated the problem. Because when they downgraded the rating by two grades or, two, or more very quickly, 
It meant that uh, pension funds and other fiduciaries had to dump their ownership because they're not allowed to have these low-rated bonds. And when they did that, what do you think happened? The prices plummeted. And so their forecast about low ratings came out to be correct. So they helped create the problems that they were describing. Well, in 2007 and 2008, the rating agencies lived up to the reputation they had in 1997 and 98. Basel seems a little bit surprised. But why they were surprised uh, is, uh, a mix, uh, is, is a mystery to me. In fact, if you looked at the incentive structures of the rating agencies, uh, things are even worse. The rating agencies were being paid by the banks who were giving them these toxic mortgages and these complicated products to rate. So you're asking the person who's paying you to, you know, uh, I mean, I, it's a problem. Uh, I, I used to say we give, you, we give our students grades and they pay us. But actually, they, most of them don't actually pay us. Uh, uh, most of them are in scholarships anyway, so, so it doesn't. Uh, uh, but the connection is not, not a very strong connection. I mean, I, I have to be a little sensitive on this subject. But, but uh, and I, I give everybody an A anyway, so. so uh, <laughs> uh, but the, uh, but the, the conflict of interest should have been fairly apparent. Uh, there's competition among the rating agencies, and the competition is of the form uh, trying to get the, you, you shop around until you get a rating agencies to give you the rating that you want. Uh, and the system uh, in a, failed uh, in a way that was uh, very, very predictable. Uh, the rating agencies and the banks and the financial markets more generally had had a long record of not being able to assess risk. They had a long record of failing to understand uh, what I call fat tail distributions, low probability events. Uh, the, the events that are supposed to happen once in a century seem to happen about every five to 10 years. Uh, and every five or 10 years, they're surprised. Uh, they seem to not understand uh, correlations. Um, they uh, have a difficulty of understanding basic problems of agency. Uh, what it seems the, that a lot of our students went to, to uh, that went to the business schools listened to about half the lecture, but forgot but were asleep in the other half of the lecture, and so they got about the wonderful virtues of securitization and uh, notions of diversification. But when we went on and say you can't diversify when you, if you have highly correlated assets, you're not getting much diversification, and that securitization introduces a problem of uh, asymmetries of information and, and uh, agency, they're obviously asleep at that part of the lecture. And so they went to Wall Street and took the first part of the lecture and said we're creating these wonderful new innovations. But what was remarkable is they were giving these lectures about how these new products were creating a brave new world, fundamentally changing the world, and yet they were estimating the risk associated with this on the basis of data from a world before they created the new world. So there was an intellectual incoherence that was really remarkable. Now, 
That intellectual coherence, lack of it, is what a, re what, what a government regulator should, should be paying attention to. The government regulator should be paying attention to the fact that what happens if every bank is using the same risk model and they are all told, told the risk model says dump at the same time and they all try to dump, prices will collapse. Now that was a lesson that we thought we had learned in 1987 and the uh, equity meltdown of that year. But the wonderful thing about banks is that they were in financial markets is that they're very short term. 87 was 20 years ago. And so totally forgotten, uh, not included in their models. So uh, they, they, they've repeated uh, uh, many of exactly the same mistakes, and they're likely to continue to repeat the mistakes again. Uh, the regulators have a consistent, uh, uh, regulators when they're chosen, and I'll come back to that, when they're chosen from the financial markets and therefore are close to self-regulators, uh, engage in many of the same problems. In the late 80s, after the 87 crisis in the United States, there was a demand for uh, having uh, better a regulatory, financial regulatory system, and uh, uh, a better risk management. And banks introduced notions of, uh, uh, banks introduced a, a, a notion of capital adequacy, risk-adjusted capital adequacy. The question is, how do you adjust for risk? Well, there are two kinds of risk. There's the risk of default, and there's a risk that the prices might change. Uh, the risk of prices might change can be a very big risk. For instance, long-term government bonds are very variable because long-term interest rates can change. Well, Alan Greenspan, the architect of the current mess in the United States, uh, back then uh, decided that uh, while credit risk was an important risk, there was no such thing as financial risk. That, by, that you could treat a long-term government bond as if it were a safe asset. Even though its price could fall 10, 15, 20%, leaving the bank in a very bad position. And that encouraged the banks to gamble. Uh, now, uh, in fact, it also contributed to the, the, to, to the uh, economic recession of 1991. Because what happened was that banks were allowed to treat these long-term government bonds as if they were safe, but loans to uh, uh, corporations and firms were treated as if they were risky. And that encouraged the banks to do to hold government bonds, which is not what banks are supposed to do. They're supposed to be providing finance for the economy, not for the federal government. And so they took money that was going to the corporations and gave it to the federal government, and that lack of finance that helped bring the, the downturn of 1991. Well, in this particular case, the gamble paid off. But the banking system was at risk. It paid off because 
the Clinton administration and, and the first Bush administration made a decision to reduce long-term government debt uh, deficits, and uh, long-term interest rates fell, government bonds increased, and the gamble that the, the banks had made in long-term government bonds paid off. But it was a gamble, and it was a gamble in which the taxpayers, had it failed, would have had to pick up the pieces. Well, what, I, what I'm trying to explain is, is that uh, uh, the Basel framework, which has been to delegate the management of bank risk to the banks, is not a framework that has worked. It's a framework that has failed, and failed very badly, and failed in a way that was predictable, given what we've seen over the many years. But actually, in some ways, the Basel framework is even worse because it has, in many ways, discriminated against developing countries. It's a framework which has really been dominated by the advanced industrial countries. And let me just mention uh, three ways in which uh, that uh, 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 evidenced itself. Uh, the first is that in the earlier version of Basel uh, uh, agreement, it, it encouraged short-term lending. The risk associated for these capital adequacy standards, the risk associated with short-term loans was the, viewed to be lower, uh, for short-term loans was to be viewed as lower than for long-term loans. In other words, the Basel risk system encouraged Western banks to lend to developing countries short-term. Well, this short-term lending is what enhanced the volatility of money coming into developing countries. Money would go in, but because it was short-term, when sentiment changed, the money would go out. It encouraged these kinds of speculative short-term capital flows. And these speculative short-term capital flows were what lay under the 1997-98 the crisis and the crisis in Latin America that happened uh, a couple years later. So the Basel Accords were in a, the, the Basel framework was essentially in a framework that was encouraging speculative lending and the kind of lending that led to instability in the developing countries. Well, in a way that was okay because that was, the intent was not worrying about developing countries. The intent was to protect the financial systems at the core. At the, it was not, it was actually discriminating against the periphery. More risk in the periphery enhanced money coming into the center. So at least some people think the whole system was designed to help the, the financial system at the center at the expense of the financial system in the periphery. And what's different now, and I'm gonna to come to that toward the end of my talk, What's different about today is it has failed, not with respect to the periphery, it's failed at the center. And that is why there's a real concern about a demand now for reform. Um, they discriminate against developing countries in other ways. For instance, the risk adjustment required for lending to developing countries was much higher than that for developed countries. So in effect, it discouraged money going into developing countries. But more broadly, the way the international community has treated 
developing countries, finance in the periphery, has shown a lot of, uh, has been very hypocritical. A lot of very marked differences between that, uh, what happens in the periphery and at the center, that has been highlighted by what has been happening in the current economic uh, downturn. And let me just give you a, a couple examples. In the 1997-98 crisis, everybody talked about transparency. The problem was, you know, the, the, the lack of transparency in the developing countries in East Asia was blamed at the center of the crisis. Well, as discussions evolved, those in the developing countries say, well, you know, you can't have half transparency. We need more, you know, if you want transparency, you have to have more comprehensive transparency. And that means you have to have transparency in the hedge funds that are putting money into our country. At that point, Larry Summers, who was then a deputy secretary, went on to, to re, uh, more fame as president of Harvard, uh, short term, um, <laughs> said, uh, oh no, uh, we meant transparency in developing countries, not in developed countries. <laughs> uh, it, it, we, went on and give an argument that, in fact, if we have too much transparency, there won't be an incentive to invest in information. Uh, in fact, lack of transparency is necessary in the developed countries to have the incentives to acquire information. Well, uh, this uh, lack of transparency, of course, has now been carried to a high level uh, in the advanced industrial countries where the banks themselves don't know what their own balance sheets are. <laughs> One of the reasons that there is a credit squeeze in the West is that banks know that they don't know what their own balance sheets are, and therefore how can they know about the balance sheet of the people who they're lending to? And in that kind of context, what is the best thing to do is not to lend. The um, lack of transparency, though, has been uh, extended to the operation of our central bank. Uh, the Federal Reserve has engaged in, in uh, bailout uh, of Bear Stearns. Um, American taxpayers have been put at risk at $29 billion. Not quite as impressive as what you have done here in Northern Rock, but we're trying to compete uh, and, and seeing how we can squander taxpayer money as we say we don't have enough to do a whole list of social objectives. Um, but uh, no one knows out of that 29 billion that might be at risk, how much is really at risk? How were these assets priced? People have asked. I don't think Bernanke knows. Uh, I don't think anybody knows the nature of the bailout that occurred with Bear Stearns. Uh, they know what happened. Some assets of questionable value were transferred to the federal government, to the Federal Reserve. So we know, you know, we can describe the transaction, but we can't tell very much about the value of the assets that were transferred and what it was at risk uh, and what that implies. Another aspect that was talked about in a great deal in the 97-98 in the, uh, uh, was the issue of moral hazard, and lectures about moral hazard uh, abound and flourished. 
But in the last crisis, we've tried to maximize, not minimize, moral hazard. Uh, the Bear Stearns shareholders walked off with over a billion dollars, while American taxpayers bore the risk. They didn't receive a dime in compensation. And there was no risk premium. Bear Stearns was not, had not been subject to the kind of regulation that commercial banks have been subjected to. And now the discussion in the United States is we have to be careful about not over-regulating, is what the banks say. We want a free pass. We want you to bail us out. Uh, we want the fire insurance, but we don't want any requirements about sprinklers. <laughs> uh, and that is the mentality of the, of the banking system. And they've been very critical of your central bank governor here for saying, talking about uh, moral hazard and bailout, uh, where I think he was trying to put forward a reasonable case that, that there is a risk of these bailouts. Uh, and and uh, I think the answer is they knew that there was a risk. Uh, and they like it that way. They want to keep it that way. Well, I could go on, but I think the, the point is clear that there has been a, a lot of hypocrisy uh, uh, and a lot of this hypocrisy has had the, the effect of treating the developing countries in a way that's very different from the way that the advanced industrial countries uh, is treated. Well, what is the bottom line out of all of this is that we can't rely on self-regulation, we can't rely on finance ministers and central bank governors to regulate the global financial system. Uh, the way I put it is the following. But it, Finance is too important to leave to finance ministers uh, and central bank governors. Uh, finance is at the center of, of, of our economy. When the financial system breaks down, uh, the economy, uh, it has very severe consequences for the economy. Uh, the reason that the, I am so uh, pessimistic about the prospects of the U.S. economy is in part that, yes, we misallocated hundreds of billions of dollars. We wasted money. But I'm also pessimistic that because the financial system is, has been so impaired, the likelihood, it is not likely that we'll be able to continue, uh, uh, that uh, there will be a significant shortfall between our potential economic growth and our actual economic growth. Unemployment will grow. Um, Output that could have been produced will not be produced. Uh, and uh, a whole variety of important needs will not be addressed. So we need a new regulatory framework. Uh, we need a new regulatory framework within countries, and we need a new regulatory framework internationally. And so let me describe uh, very quickly uh, the, some of the outlines of this uh, regulatory framework domestically, and then I'm going to end with, with how we can approach this internationally. Uh, domestically, I, I, I'm obviously not going to be able to outline a full, full regulatory system, but I want to just highlight two aspects that have not been uh, at, the, at the core of what has been done in the past. First, we need something that uh, I, uh, has been called a Financial Product Safety Commission. Uh, it's clear that the financial institutions have been creating financial products that are creating risk. They said they were supposed to manage risk, but they didn't. They were actually creating risk. 
And if you look at them, what they were doing is slicing and dicing risk, moving it around in a way that was so transparent that it could not have been managed well. And you ask the question, were they creating products that actually were dealing with the real risks that are faced by the economy? And the answer is no. What are some of these real risks? Well, real risks are ordinary homeowners buying a home, facing risks of unemployment, facing risk of volatility in asset prices, uh, facing volatility of interest rates. If they were creating products that are concerned with the ordinary citizens of our countries, they should have created mortgages that helped ordinary individuals manage these risks better. But they didn't, that was not their concern. And the result of their failure is that one and a half million Americans have already lost their homes. 2.2 millions are expected to lose their home in the next 12 months. And with that, most of them will lose their entire life savings. And the number of homes that will eventually be below water, that is to say where the value of the house is less than the value uh, of, of uh, the mortgage, is estimated uh, likely to be about 25% of all mortgages. So we are facing not only an economic problem, but a social problem. Whether it will turn out to be this bad will depend, in some extent, who gets elected uh, in uh, November, uh, what actions are taken. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, what I described was the, the more pessimistic uh, scenario. But what is already clear is that it is a major social problem for many people in the United States already. Uh, it was very clear that many of these products that were being created uh, were being created for reasons that one should have been suspicious. You know, uh, a lot of the defenders of what went on, including Alan Greenspan, said, uh, you know, this is wonderful. We're creating opportunities for Americans to own a home, who Americans who hadn't owned a home before. And the answer is yes, they allowed them to own their home for a few months. Meanwhile, you took away all their life savings. And at the end of the Bush administration, a smaller fraction of Americans will be owning homes than at the beginning. Not exactly. Uh, a, a, a statement of a real success story. Well, if you look at what they were doing, it smelled. Because what they were doing is creating these, these mortgages, a lot of them, I mean, really a lot of evidence of a lot of corruption, but even the non-corrupt ones, you had to pay down almost zero. Okay, now you get, take a mortgage to zero. If the price goes down, it was zero down payment, I'm sorry, a zero down payment. If the price goes down, you walk away. If the price goes up, you keep the capital gain. Well, what does that mean the bank was doing? What did it say it was doing? Well, it was giving away money because that's called an option. The homeowner got money if it went up, didn't lose anything if it went down. And of that kind of uh, mortgage, what would you want to do? The more, bigger the mortgage, the more money you wound up with because you couldn't lose. And the bigger the mortgage, the more you could walk away with. 
there was something very strange because it is not part of the business model of most American banks to be giving away money. And that's what they were doing. It's particularly not part of American business model to give away money to poor people. <laughs> giving away money to CEOs is one thing. But these were subprime. These are people at the bottom. And that's never been part of American business model. So what were they doing? You have to scratch your head and say, the regulators should have been asking a question like that. They should have been asking, what were they doing? What were they thinking? Well, the answer is actually not that hard. It goes back to this concept of securitization. They were creating pieces of paper that they were selling to people in Australia and France and elsewhere who were stupid enough to buy them. And that was based on the general principle that a fool is being born every minute. And if we can just find those fools, uh, we can make money. And they found a lot of them, hundreds of billions of dollars of them. And they walked off with big, big bonuses for finding these fools. Not for making the American financial system work better, not for helping America grow better, not for helping the world grow better, but for finding a lot of fools. Well, so that's one thing. Creating a financial products safety commission to figure out if you're going to create a product, you've got to show what it's doing, and you have to show that it's safe. If there's no rationale for it, it's all right for people who are gamblers to, get it, to buy them. I, I'm not, I'm, you know, as long as they're consulting adults, uh, that's one thing. But for ordinary taxpayers to wind up picking up the price for their gambling seems to me something that we shouldn't allow. And that's what uh, we should have, or to have pension funds wind up buying these assets. So that, that is uh, at least uh, one part of, of the regulatory framework. The second one is we, we need to have a financial system uh, uh, oversight commission. The problem is that you need to have people looking at each of the pieces of our financial system because each of them are very complicated. Banking regulation is complicated. Securities are complicated. And you need experts in each of these. It was really in the way that the whole system worked together, mortgages and, you know, on the one hand, that were not part of the banking system. The whole system, nobody was looking at the whole system. And because nobody was looking at the whole system, the whole system didn't function well. One of the problems of the system was the design of compensation packages. You know, economists say that incentives matter. People on Wall Street said incentives matter. But they didn't, what they really meant was, we like to get paid more. <laughs> because if you looked at their incentives, their incentives were designed to have excessive risk-taking, to gamble. Because, and, and we see what happened, they gambled. When they won, they got to take home their money. When they lost, they didn't have to pay back. So all the hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars that they've gotten over the last five years, none of that is going to have to be paid back, or I should say very little of that is going to have to be paid back 
as the economy goes down and the financial, you know, the, the banks are losing billions of dollars. None of that is getting paid back by the people who walked home and deposited their money in their bank accounts. No, I shouldn't say bank accounts, invested it elsewhere. Um, and so uh, there were really these asymmetries, we call convexities in their incentive structures that were designed to uh, have excessive risk-taking, but really to engage in gambling at the expense of, of, of others, including uh, American taxpayers. One of the really interesting aspects of this crisis is that it is, while it is involves new, in, new instruments, uh, new institutions, in many ways it involves the same problem that has been associated with almost every other financial crisis, and that is excessive leverage. What they did is to figure out new ways of increasing leverage in ways that nobody could see. It was really innovations in lack of transparency, and they did innovate. Uh, very well in that area. So uh, one of the problems is that you had uh, people with very little capital borrowing to buy assets that were themselves very levered, that were themselves buying other assets that were very levered. And so the high, a very high degree of leverage is why relatively, you know, what, what, what happened is that it fed the bubble of housing prices as they were going up. But now as the housing price is going down, it's uh, going to contribute to large financial losses. Well, these are the kinds of reforms that need to go on within each country. And there's a beginning of a demand in the United States and, and in Europe for reforms in the regulatory systems along the lines. What about internationally? The problem about international regulation, international governance more generally, goes back to the problem identified earlier. We don't really have, a, we don't have really a system of international government. Uh, we have systems of governmental cooperation. And in that system of governmental co cooperation, we delegate representation from each country to those who are in those particular areas. So in trade, we delegated to the trade ministers and finance, we delegated to finance ministers and central bank governors. But the problem that I identified is that these finance ministers and these central bank governors are part of the problem. Or at least they are so reflective of the interests of those in the financial markets that they can't, it's difficult for them to be part of the solution. In the United States, it was so clear that there was a bubble, that there was a party. Alan Greenspan didn't want, you know, when he was asked about was there a bubble, he said, no, there's a, maybe a little froth in the economy. Well, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the domestic regulatory authorities, there are a lot of concern about capture of domestic regulatory authorities, but when it's elevated to the international level, capture by the groups becomes almost inevitable because there isn't the broader array of voices that get heard. At the international level, it is the voices of the, of the financial community that will inevitably get heard in the regulation or have been in the past the regulation of the, of the, uh, uh, of the financial system.
And that's why what I would argue is that we need two things. First, uh, we need to begin with a bottom-up approach by having strong demands for what is the right regulatory structure within each country and then working cooperatively to say what are the neat areas where what one regulations in one system affect regulations of the other cooperate together recognizing the risk of regulatory capture but making sure that the regulation is not delegated not in not delegated to those who are being regulated or those who reflect the interest of those being regulated uh, is the only way that we're going to develop a, an effective system. And the other part of it is we have to put what goes on in the financial system within the bigger picture. Uh, as we look at in the bigger picture, what we recognize is that to a very large extent, we've delegated a lot of power to the WTO, to the trade representatives, because that's the focal point of a lot of the special interest groups because that is where the most effective enforcement goes. And so we have had financial market, yes, um, financial market regulation, uh, financial market liberalization within the WTO. So uh, we should not allow that. We've had intellectual property within the WTO, financial market liberalization within the WTO. These don't belong there. The institution, the most democratic, the most, uh, the, 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 the framework, the only framework that we have for approaching these problems internationally is the UN. Uh, there's a recognition that of the limitations of the UN, but the response to those limitations, I think, is to strengthen the UN. Uh, there, is, um, uh, uh, there is a group within the UN called the Economic and Social Security Council uh, that is supposedly concerned with coordinating uh, these issues of economic and social policies uh, among the countries. Uh, I think it has the best prospects for trying to coordinate. It still is not, it needs to be, you know, it has, uh, I, I, I'm not, very aware of the limitations that it's had and the problems that it faces, but we have to work with institutions uh, that we have to strengthen them rather than uh, to abandon them. So what I, I, I leave maybe with a slightly uh, cautious note that I, I began by saying that, that uh, there are these important problems of global externalities, global public goods that need global collective action. What I emphasize is that we don't yet have uh, the institutions, the democratic institutions, to deal with these effectively. It is very clear in this financial crisis, in the 1997-98 financial crisis, that we need better ways of dealing with it. And I hope that in the coming decades, as we recognize the failures and we recognize the need that we can help develop a, a more effective way of dealing with it. It's not going to be easy, uh, and it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, but I think it is time to begin working on this problem. Thank you.